thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you all today. Today we are continuing in our Ephesians series. We're spending a lot, actually, this year going through this amazing letter written by the Apostle Paul, so one of the men Jesus commissions to get the church established, um, to a church in Ephesus, certainly, actually, probably churches around there as well. In the last couple of weeks, uh, Paul, our Paul, Paul Mann, has done a great job of unpacking for us the amazing kind of hymn and poem and outburst of praise that Paul starts his letter with. And he's taking us through the work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and all these incredible spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing, Paul says, which has been given to us. Today we're going to go to the next part of chapter 1 in Ephesians, where we find that Paul actually prays for the believers he's writing to. And he prays for their growth in Christ, that they grow in their walk and their maturity with Christ. And so it's a great passage for us to be looking at today as part of this discipleship term. As Steve's already alluded to, each of the kind of three main chunks of the year, we're taking one particular focus. And this term, our focus is discipleship, is learning actually to be followers of Jesus. What does it mean to mature in our walk with Jesus and to help each other to do that as well? And so today we're going to be looking at this passage and picking up some tips basically from Paul on what it means to grow in Christ. And what we're actually going to find is that Christian growth is very like cake baking. If you're baking a cake, there's two things you need to do. You need to get together the right ingredients first off. And then you've got to take the ingredients and you've got to put them in the oven and you've got to cook them. If you only do one or the other of the two parts, you're not going to get much success. Just mix the ingredients together, you've got a kind of gloopy mess which some people quite like, but it's just gloopy mess. If you just stick an empty tin into the oven, all you've got is a hot cake tin. When you're baking a cake, you've got to get the ingredients together, then you've got to cook them. And Paul's going to show us that Christian growth is a bit like that. You've got to get some ingredients. You've got to get some truth in you. You've got to pick up the word of God and put truth into your mind. But then that truth has got to be cooked. You've got to ask the Holy Spirit to come and move it from your head to your heart, to come and bring revelation and illumination so that you believe things with such depth and such certainty they make a difference to the way you live, the way you think, and the way you feel. And so I hope today we're going to go away from here knowing actually I want to grow in Christ this year, and here's some steps I can take towards doing that. So let's see what Paul says. We're going to start reading from verse uh, 15 in chapter 1. For this reason... Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul prays here. On several occasions in his letters, actually, he writes down his prayers. Um, They're great insights, actually. It's great to say, to read a prayer of Paul and to think, does my prayer life look like this? To say, what tips can I pick up, actually, for my prayer life from this? And we see here, Paul does two things. First of all, he thanks God, and then he asks God for something. He starts by thanking. 
He thanks God for these believers. He says, for this reason, and he's pointing back, as a big backwards arrow, pointing to all these amazing spiritual blessings, all the things that God has done in his life. And he says, because of their faith in Jesus. And he says, because of their love for one another. He's thanking God for these believers because actually Paul recognises that all Christian growth, from the very first step into life following Jesus to the final steps of maturity in Christ, it all comes from God. It's all his work, and so he's the one who deserves all the thanks and all the praise for it. He recognises their faith is the result of God having called them. He recognises their love for each other is the result of God working in their hearts. And this is kind of a minor point of what I'm saying today, but I just find it so challenging. Are we a thankful people? Are we quick to see the good in what God's doing? You know, some of Paul's letters, he's writing to churches which, frankly, are in an absolute mess. And yet still he starts by thanking God for the believers. It's just such a challenge to us. Are we quick to complain about each other and and moan and pray maybe that we change and that that person gets a bit less whatever? Or actually are we thanking God for the grace he's shown to them, to what he's done in their life, thanking that he called them, that he is changing them? I just find this really challenging to our own prayer lives reflect this kind of attitude that we start by thanking God. And then Paul turns and he starts asking God. And he asks God that he, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He asks ultimately that they might know God better. And this knowledge isn't just kind of knowing a few more facts in the head. It's not so you can go and sit down and take a multiple choice quiz and get all the answers right. This is a knowledge that makes a difference. It's an experiential kind of a relational knowledge. Sometimes we talk about it as a knowledge that's moved from our heads to just kind of a cognitive thinking knowledge to one that's moved to our hearts. That we know with such certainty that it shapes the way we think, the way we feel, the the way we live. A deep, deep truth that makes a difference. A certainty that can't be shaken. And he says, would this happen through the giving of the Holy Spirit? He calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Your translation might actually say a spirit of wisdom, which actually is what Paul writes. But it's almost certain that here he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Because elsewhere in the New Testament, we see it's the Holy Spirit who's the one who brings truth to our hearts. Jesus, in John's Gospel, he calls the Spirit the Spirit of truth. And he says, this Spirit, he's going to come. He's going to take the things that I say, the things that I am and do, and he's going to bear witness to them in your heart. And so just as Paul recognises that all past Christian growth, from start to finish, it comes from God. And and that's why he prays, he thanks God for these believers. So also he recognises that any hope they have for future growth is only going to come by God's working in our hearts, by the Holy Spirit himself coming and being with them. And he says that this growth is going to come through revelation. This spirit, he says, is going to bring revelation of the knowledge of him. Revelation is about uncovering. To reveal something is to uncover it. The kind of word imagery Paul's using is, imagine I've got something here, it was covered in a sheet. And you can kind of see some of the shapes and you might be able to have some guesses of what it is, but you can't quite tell and you certainly can't work out what the details are. Revelation would come when actually we remove the sheet. It's revealed. Suddenly you can see all the details. Suddenly you can more fully understand what's going on. Sometimes revelation's a bit like that penny-dropping moment where suddenly something makes sense. And this, as I was preparing this, reminded me of a a story from my life, a a moment of revelation, a penny-dropping moment. It was um, a few years ago now. I was, I think, around 18, 
And at a friend's house, we were just watching a film or TV or something. And uh, the thing you have to know to understand this story is that throughout my childhood, my parents, being the very kind and careful people that they were, taught me that if you sit too near to the TV, your eyes will go square. Anyone else here taught that or has said that to a child? This might be a cautionary tale, by the way, to parents. And I do remember, I remember teachers saying the same as well. I remember this line in the classroom which you couldn't sit in front of that because your eyes might go square. Well, sit back forwards to around uh, sometime when I'm 18. I'm at my friend's house. They put on this film, the TV, and for some reason, I still don't remember why, they decided to sit right in front of the TV or to kneel there for quite a while. And suddenly, like a penny dropping, a light bulb went on my head, and I knew it wasn't true. Somehow I hadn't really thought about it. I genuinely think I hadn't thought about it for years. But suddenly I knew. And I said to my friend, I said, it's not true, is it? And they kind of looked at me rather confused. And they said, what's not true, Angie? I said, it's not true that if you sit too close to the TV, your eyes are going to go square. And they looked and they said, no, Angie, no, it's, it's not true. That was a moment of revelation. when I, It was literally like a light bulb switched on in my head. The penny dropped and I knew the truth. Sometimes, when the Holy Spirit works in our heart, revelation can be as dramatic as that. It can be like in a moment, the Holy Spirit comes, the light bulb goes on, the penny drops, and we know something's true. Suddenly we get, oh, I get that God is like that. I I get, I finally see that's how God sees me. Sometimes, actually, the same thing happens, but it's over a period of time. It might not be that I can pinpoint that was the moment when that bit of revelation came, but sometimes it'll be I can look back over this season of my life, and I know the Holy Spirit has taken something I kind of I knew about, taking something I know. It makes a difference to me. It shapes the way I think, the way I feel, the way I live. And whether these things happen in the moment as a flash like a light bulb going on, whether they happen over a, a period of time over our lives, we all need them. No matter how long we've been following Jesus, no matter how mature we might be in our walk with Christ, we all need further revelation from the Holy Spirit. I spend, as some of you know, a lot of my time studying the Bible. I'm very fortunate that I've been able to take years uh, out of my life really to focus on studying the Bible. But I'm so conscious that I can only do so much. Books can only teach me so much. Lecturers can only teach me so much. I know it's only when the Holy Spirit comes that I really get something. It really makes a difference to my life. And I know that now and forever throughout my life, I will still need that. I'll still need him to be my ultimate teacher. The Holy Spirit himself to come and to work in my heart. And Paul talks about this uh, revealing work of the Holy Spirit elsewhere too. If we go to uh, 1 Corinthians, he talks about it there. And you might remember last year, we looked at 1 Corinthians 1. And I spoke about having a mindset for mission, about the fact that when we're going out on mission, telling people about Jesus, we've got to know that God is the one who calls people. He's the one who persuades people and draws their heart to him. And in that context, Paul says, I don't use words of wisdom when I'm preaching. Because he says, I don't want people to be convinced by me or to trust in what I say. I want them to trust in God and and be led by him. And in the next chapter in 1 Corinthians, he says, well, what about talking to believers? What about talking to each other within the church? And he says, actually, then I do use wisdom. But it's not my wisdom. It's the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And it's the wisdom that the Holy Spirit applies to our hearts. And he says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. He's saying the person who knows an individual best is their own spirit. Their own spirit who lives inside of them is going to know them best. And likewise, he says, therefore, God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, knows God and his mind best because he himself is God. And then Paul says, and now we have received not the spirit of the world, 
but the Spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Friends, if you're a Christian here today, you've received the Holy Spirit living inside of you, that you might understand, you might comprehend, you might truly know deep down the things given us by God. He says in this chapter, he says, spiritual things can only be understood by spiritual people. It's only when the Spirit is living in us that we can get these things. And so in Ephesians 1, that's what Paul's praying. That's how he knows these believers are going to grow into all that God has done and all that God has got for them. And actually, just thinking about prayer for a moment, I find it really interesting that this is what he chooses to say. I don't know about you, but if you've been writing this letter, you could have chosen absolutely anything to pray for. And you might think he would have chosen to pray for some sort of new blessings and new experiences and new levels. Actually, basically, Paul's saying, no, no, I want you to experience what you've already got. His first prayer, his priority for them, is for them to know and to understand and to live in what God has already done for us. And I think when I look at my prayer life, that's just a big challenge for me. How often actually am I saying, no, no, God, I need you to take me more into what I've already got. I need a better understanding of it, a better experience of what I've got before rushing off to get other things. This, uh, to be honest, another confession time reminds me of my relationship to books. I really like books. I love learning. I love reading. And uh, I have plenty of books. I have a good at least 400 or so books at home about the Bible. I understand the Bible. And yet still, I find myself wanting to buy more books. So I hear about a new book that's come out or I see it and I think, oh, I want to buy that book. I want to read it. I want to learn from it. When actually the reality is I should spend more time mining everything I can from the books I've already got before I go off spending money buying more books. And that's a bit what we, I think, are so often like in our prayer lives. We're, we're running off saying, oh, I want more of this. I want to experience that and new levels and all of this. When God's saying, look behind you. Look at all this stuff you've already got. Pray that you would mine the depths of that. That you would truly be satisfied and that you'd enjoy all of what I've already done for you. All of what you've already got. I just think that's a challenge for us. Are we going to pursue that? Are we going to uh, look to, to that in our own prayer lives? And the second thing that really struck him about this is he asked the revelation. He says, I want them to have a revelation of him, meaning in context, God. Paul knows the most important thing for the believers to whom he's writing to really understand, to, to really comprehend, is God himself. To understand who God really is, what he's really like. And again, I think this is something we so easily jump over. We so easily want to think about ourselves and about uh, the blessings God's given us, all of which is right to do. But in so doing, we just get used to jumping over who God actually is. And we think, well, it's obvious who God is. We know who God is. And yet, I think all around us, the world is trying to teach us and train us to believe that God is someone else. All around us, the, the voices are coming in and, and the enemy's working, trying to convince us that God's actually someone who he isn't. We need a revelation of who God himself is. Never overlook the importance of getting to know God just for who he is. When you truly understand what God's like, it really will make a difference to your life. And I'm just struck that actually, if you look carefully at Ephesians 1, I do think it's more about God than it is about us. We rightly mine it for truths about our identities. It tells us about all these amazing spiritual blessings God's giving us. And so rightly, we we look at those, we meditate them, we take them for ourselves. But... Paul's actually primarily talking about God. He he opens that great poem saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything he says happens in there according to God's will. It happens according to his grace. And all of it, he says, is to the praise of his glorious grace. The purpose of all these blessings, the purpose of our salvation, ultimately, is because of God. It's that God might receive the glory and the worship that is due to him. 
So I'm not saying we shouldn't think about ourselves and actually what God's done for us, because I definitely know and believe we should. But actually, let's not jump too far and overlook the importance of knowing who God himself is. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would help us further and further to understand who God really is. And so the kind of big challenge I want to land us with at the end of this kind of first little part is, do we recognize our need for this work of the Holy Spirit in our heart? It's so easy to rush through life and to think we're doing fine and do this, that, and the other. Actually, we need to just stop and wait on the Holy Spirit to know we're dependent on him to come and do a work in our heart and to cry out in prayer that he would do that for us. Does this feature as a common thing in your prayer life? Do you regularly pray prayers like this? If you flick through Paul's letters, later in this letter, the start of Philippians, the start of Colossians, Paul's praying very similar prayers that these believers he's writing to would have a true understanding, a true uh, kind of knowledge that makes a difference. I just think there's a challenge for us there. Are we doing the same? And then Paul goes on. He starts to expand upon this prayer to tell us what he wants God to reveal. And this is really interesting as well because he's just asked, Holy Spirit, would you come and reveal the truth of of what God's like to these people's hearts? And you might think, great. He's asked, the Holy Spirit can do his work. We'll leave him to it. But actually, Paul says, now I'm going to tell you some of those things I want you to know. And of course, huge swathes of this letter and Paul's other letters are telling us about God, telling us what God has done in Christ. And I think the reason that he's doing both, he's asking the Holy Spirit's work and he's telling us the truth, is because he knows that Christian growth is like cake baking. You need the ingredients and you need the cooking. Actually, we need to put into ourselves truth. We need to read the Bible, get into ourselves the truth of who God is, of what he's done. And then the Holy Spirit comes, and it's like he takes hold of that, and he, he cooks it, he brands it onto our hearts, so it makes a difference. And I know the Holy Spirit, he can do that without us first having the truth in us. But actually, the normal way he works, what Paul's showing us here, is that there's, it's like a partnership. As we feed ourselves with truth, we're, we're preparing ourselves for God to move those things from our head to our heart, to make them come to us and make them make a difference. And this truth, of course, it comes from the Word of God. It comes from the Bible. And so again, there's just a huge challenge for us here. Are we feeding ourselves with the right ingredients? If you want to grow in Christ this year, have you committed, actually, to getting into the Word of God, to getting into the Bible? So often, we recognize how good the Bible is. We recognize that it is this wonderful feast which will feed us and help us. But actually, we treat it like a giant pile of food next to us. Imagine all your favorite food and all the best, nutritious, most nutritious food. And we sit there and we think, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it beautiful? I bet it tastes amazing. I bet it will do me so much good. That's great. When actually we need to start picking up the food and eating it. It's only when we take hold of it. It's only when we're putting it into ourselves and we start eating it and digesting it that it makes a difference. Friends, let's make this the year when we start picking up the word of God, eating it, devouring it, getting it into ourselves, letting it uh, meditate, letting us meditate on it, letting it grow in us. Maybe you think, I want to start this year making a regular habit of reading the Bible. It's hard to do, isn't it? How do we? Maybe you've never really got into a regular habit of reading the Bible. How do you go about doing that? Well, here's some tips. First off, get a Bible. Find a good translation. You can read something which you find you can understand. You might be that you like reading, in which case get a Bible. Get a paper Bible, not a screen. Screens our brains don't engage with properly. Get a paper Bible. Maybe actually you are not a fan of reading, but you find it much better to listen to things. Get an audio Bible. We're so, so fortunate, the amount of technology we have now. Go on YouTube. There's loads you can find on there. Get the Bible.is is app. Lots of free audio Bibles. You can choose chapters of the Bible and books of the Bible to download. 
Bluetooth, you can listen to them on the go. But start by finding a Bible and a way you can engage with the Bible. Then you need to find a time and a place. Most of us don't read our Bible, purely because we don't plan to read our Bible. We get up in the morning, we rush about, whatever we're doing, getting ready for work, getting the kids ready for school. We rush through the day, we get into bed exhausted at the end of the day, and we think, oh yeah, I didn't read the Bible. Why is that? It's because we never planned to do it. Plan a time, find a time regularly in your diary when you can get away. When you can get away from distractions, find a place where you can be away from distractions. If necessary, leave your phone, your tablet, your laptop out of the way. That's the great thing about a printed Bible, by the way, rather than a screen. Your printed Bible can't give you notifications. Put it away. Concentrate on the Word of God. If you uh, have kids, work with your partner. Work out times when, okay, this is my 15 minutes of the day when you're going to guard me from the kids so I can get away and have quiet with God. Work together to help each other. And then it's simply starting to read. You've got to choose what to read. I find a reading plan so helpful. A reading plan, basically, I get up in the morning, I'm not very with it, I open it up, I don't have to think, what am I going to read today? My reading plan tells me these are the chapters to read today. I really, that's the thing that's made the most difference to my daily reading of the Bible. Just being able to have a structure there and to know, okay, this is my, uh, my bit I'm reading today. I know that through the year I'm going to get through the Bible. There are loads of those online you can get hold of. And as you read, pray. Pray before you read. Pray that the Holy Spirit would do exactly what we just talked about. You'd have those penny-dropping moments that he would talk to you, that he would take things not just into your brain, but into your heart. And use what you're reading to pray back to him. Read some amazing truth and then pray. Thank him for it. Pray that it would come deep into your heart. Do this dialogue using the Bible to pray it with God. If you want to dig into the Bible and you maybe have never got into that habit this year, I've written a whole blog post which summarizes what I've just said. Lots of links to useful uh, downloads, reading plans, all sorts of different things, audio Bibles. That's on the blog and the website right now. So you go to kingshastings.org, go to resources, go to blog. And that hopefully will give you some help actually in starting to feed yourself the right ingredients this year. And then, of course, actually, sometimes also it's good to feed ourselves with the biblical truth through other things, through books, through downloads, all sorts of things available to us. But the thing I just want to remind us here is that you've got to have the right ingredients. A few months ago, I tried to make some bread, so much for making bread to cakes. I didn't realize that the yeast I was using was several months out of date. And the yeast is the thing that makes the dough kind of raise and uh, aerates it. And so when I cooked this bread, it basically came out as a kind of solid rock. It looked more like a brick than a loaf of bread. It wasn't nice because it wasn't the right ingredients. When it comes to books and uh, podcasts and sermon downloads and all sorts, just be wise about what you're listening to. Make sure actually the ingredients you're putting into yourself are good. And the way we do that primarily is saying, is this really what the Bible says? Never take anything for granted. Even here, we are always going to strive to our very best to teach you what the Word of God says. But even here, I want to know that everything I say today, you're checking against the Bible. That's why I bring my Bible every week. I'm sitting there checking, is this what the Bible says? Actually, because we want to be submitted to it, not to anything else. So just let's make sure we're watching, actually, that we are uh, following and being careful to put into ourselves good ingredients. And if you really think, I just don't know who to listen to or what to read, or you think, I've started this and I'm not too sure, ask a friend, ask a, someone who's maybe a bit more mature in their walk with Christ than you, and they'll be able to help you there. We work together to do this. So we need both the ingredients of the truth and the revealing work of the Holy Spirit. And back in Ephesians 1, Paul goes on to highlight to us some of the particular truths he wants us to get hold of. And so I'm just going to read them through. I'm going to just briefly kind of unpick what they are. What do these truths mean? 
And we're going to ask and expect the Holy Spirit to come and do his work of uh, revelation and illumination in our heart as I do that. I'm just going to pray first and just invite him to do that. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the, the one who comes and brings the truth to our hearts. You're the one who brings revelation, brings illumination. I just pray now as we read these wonderful truths and as I try to unpack them and to uh, expand them and explain them to us, we just pray, would you come and would you take this? Would it not just be things we know for our kind of checkbox mental exercise, but things we know in our heart that makes a difference to how we live, how we think, and how we feel? Come and do your work, Holy Spirit, we ask. Amen. The first thing Paul says, he prays, I want these guys to know, is the hope to which he has called you. He knows that actually every Christian has a hope. This hope is about looking down the timeline, looking to the future, to where we're headed. This hope is about eternity with God. It's the utter certainty that one day Jesus will come back down from being seated next to the Father. He will come to earth and he will bring with him a perfect new creation. Heaven and earth will be combined, as it were. And all the brokenness and all the pain and all the effects of sin on this earth will be engulfed by heaven and will be remade and renewed. Everything will be perfect. And this hope is the sure and certain knowledge that we ourselves, as God's people, will be raised to new life. We will have new bodies, no longer subject to decay, no longer subject to pain and to um, infirmity. And we will live with him forever. But this hope isn't like most hopes we're used to. We use the language of hope for kind of vague possibilities. You might be thinking, I hope we get a snow day this week. You might think, I'd love a day off college, I'd love a day off work. Here's hoping there's a snow day. There's a kind of vague possibility, probably an unlikely possibility, it might happen. That's not what this hope is like. This hope isn't about a possibility. It's not even about a probability. This hope is an absolute certainty. The thing we cling on to is the absolute certainty that we will be with Jesus for all of eternity in utter perfection in a new creation. And you know, having that viewpoint in the distance, catching hold of that revelation that that is where I'm headed, that is my eternal destiny, that's the sure and certain hope I have, makes an incredible difference to how you live now. However dark and difficult life might get, whatever stresses and strains and pains, actually, that further view can help us to walk through now. It can help us and sustain us. This reminds me of a, a very, this example pales in comparison, but it makes me think of when I book in my holidays. I love to go up north to see some of my friends up there, and I book in my holidays, and in the weeks that running up to it, no matter how stressful life me and how much work I've got to do and deadlines and all this, that, actually the thought of being there, the thought of being able to switch off and relax and see my friends and just being a place where I know I can just uh, switch off and enjoy, It sustains me through those times. It helps me get through just those few weeks of hard work and stress. And that's just a tiny, tiny little flavor of this amazing hope we have, which can sustain us through even the darkest, even most painful things. Jesus said that following him actually will be painful sometimes. We take up our cross. We deny ourselves. actually. It's costly. It's costly, but it's worth it. Because the hope that is certain, that is guaranteed, will make everything worth it. Every pain we experience in this life will pale in comparison when we're with Jesus for all of eternity. Maybe today you're here and you're in one of those seasons of life where it just feels like hard work. It just feels like the darkness is closing in and everything's painful and difficult. Friend, today you need to ask the Holy Spirit to bring you this truth, this revelation of the hope which you have, this certain hope which will sustain you through that time. The second thing that Paul uh, wants us to know, he says, I want you to know, he prays you'll know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 
Now, this could be talking about our inheritance. The Bible talks about us having an inheritance. Verse 14 of this very chapter, Paul said that. But actually, this seems to be talking about God's inheritance, his inheritance, he says. And God's inheritance, actually, amazingly, is us. It's his people. There's a a motif in the Old Testament that God's inheritance is his people. In Deuteronomy 32, which is one of the books near the beginning of the Bible, Moses is talking to God's people in the Old Testament. He explains that God has created all the people, all the people's groups, all the nations were made by God. And God has given each one of them their own inheritance, their own portion. They've got their own patch of land, basically, and their own resources to live with. But then Moses says, but the Lord's portion, God's inheritance, is his people. He says it's Judah and Israel. It's his Old Testament people, and now it is us. Those of us in Christ, we are God's inheritance. And why should we get excited about that? Well, I think there's two particular reasons. One is that being part of God's inheritance means that we have incredible value. You know that if you're here today and you're a Christian, you're part of God's inheritance, you are incredibly valued by God. You have incredible significance to him. He looks at you as part of his glorious inheritance. The ones he longs to be with, the ones he longs to, to um, come alongside him and to live life with him and to experience his love. If you're here and you just feel sometimes you feel unvalued, you feel actually, does anyone really care about me? Let me tell you, when you're part of God's glorious inheritance, You're valued by the only one who matters. You are of supreme value and importance. And our being part of God's inheritance also speaks of our high calling. Later in this letter, in um, Ephesians 3.10, Paul talks about the fact that, he talks about why God has formed together the church. He says, God saved us so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He's saying God has saved people and brought us together as the church, not just us as a church, but the worldwide church of all believers, so that through us, he might show his incredible wisdom to rulers and authorities, basically to evil powers which rage against him. We have a high calling. We have been called. The purpose of God bringing us together as a church is to show his wisdom to rulers and authorities. If you ever think your life doesn't have purpose, what's the point? What are you adding? You're part of the church. And the church's call is to show the wisdom of God to rulers and authorities. You have a part in God's cosmic work. He's chosen you and brought you in that you might have that purpose. So maybe today you need to hear this truth. Maybe say you need to hear that you're valued. You feel like you're insignificant, but you need to know the truth that you are valued by God, your Father in heaven. Or maybe you need to know you have a purpose in life, a high calling. You can ask today the Holy Spirit to come and to minister to your heart, to bring revelation of this truth to you. And then the third and final uh, truth that Paul particularly wants us to grasp and the Holy Spirit to reveal to us is the, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. You know, we, as God's people, are those for whom his immeasurably great power is at work. And he's really, he's shouting this. This is kind of in bold type, capital letters. Immeasurable greatness of his power. He's saying this emphatically. This is the power which conquers absolutely every other power. Nothing can stand up against it. When we get to the end of this letter, to chapter 6, we'll find Paul talking about the fact that we're involved, actually, in a cosmic battle, basically. But it's the battle where Jesus has already won the victory. It's a battle in which we, as his people, can stand firm, knowing that, actually, he has already won. He's already conquered. That, actually, the immeasurable greatness of his power is stronger than any attempt at power that the enemy or that anyone else might try to bring out against us. 
And he says that this power, it's according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. Basically, this is all based on what God has already done in Christ. The victory, the power has already been grasped. He's already holding it. He's already got a secure hold on it. When did this happen? It happened when God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This happened when Jesus was raised from the dead. The, the declaration of his victory, that he triumphed over death, over sin, over all that's broken and wrong with the world. And when he ascended and returned to be with God the Father. And now he's sitting at God's right hand. And the right hand is the position of um, authority. It's the position of privilege. And God the Father has given it to God the Son, Jesus. And now he is placed far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age now, but also in the age to come. Jesus has been exalted and seated above all things. And he's piling up these words, all rule and authority and power and dominion. Basically, anything you try, he's been placed higher. Anything you're facing, he's been placed higher. Anything you feel is attacking you, Jesus has been seated higher. And that's not just for now. That's even in the age to come. Even after Jesus returns throughout all time, he is the one who is being placed on top. And not only has he been placed higher, he's also been given incredible authority. Paul continues, And God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus has been given supreme authority. Everything else is just his footstool, which he rests his feet upon. And he's the head of the church. He's the, the leader, the ruling authority overall. You know, this is all pretty incredible in itself, but actually, if we look carefully, it's even more incredible. Because Paul says the reason this is true, the reason Jesus is being exalted, placed at the right hand, given all authority over all things, is for the benefit of the church. He's there for us. He says, God gave him his head over all things to the church. And he's just said the immeasurable power of his greatness is at work towards us who believe. Friends, this power is for us. It's being worked out for us. It's available to us. And he finishes it with this really quite weird phrase, the fullness of him who fills all in all, which to be honest is one of the most difficult and confusing phrases in Ephesians. And the big question we've got to ask is, well, who is it who is the fullness of what? Basically, we're asking, Paul, what are you on about? He could be saying that Jesus is the fullness of God, and God is the one who fills all in all. And this would be true. In Colossians, Paul says that in Christ, the fullness of the deity dwells, i.e. all of God is in Christ, because he himself is God. But actually, the context there, he's talking about the church at this moment, rather than talking about Christ. Again, it's kind of even more incredible. He's saying the church... Is the fullness of Christ. The church are the people who are filled by Christ. And Christ is the one who fills all in all. And notice the difference. The church is the fullness of Christ. Everything else is just filled by Christ, but the church is the fullness. He's trying to make a point. He's trying to say, actually, the power of God supremely resides in the church. There's a special relationship that God has with his people which means that all of the power of Jesus' victory lives inside of us. You know the church is us, the people, right? Not the building. It's not that this building has some incredible power. No, it's us. Wherever we go, whatever we're doing, we are the church. And this power 
that raised Jesus from the dead, that caused him to be ascended, to be seated at the right hand, put above all things, given all authority, is now in us, is now given to us, is now at work for us. Friends, maybe today you're here and you just need to be reminded of the power of God for you. Maybe you look at life and you look at situations and you just look at around you and you just think, man, I need some power. You think, man, I, I can't do this to myself. This situation is just going to drain everything out of me. Well, the wonderful truth is that the immeasurable greatness of God's power is at work towards us. It's available for us. It's at work in our lives. And maybe today, actually, the truth you need to have moves from your head to your heart to not just know about it, but to know it deep down in a way it makes a difference. It's the truth about God's power. We're going to have a chance to put this into practice now. It would be silly now to rush off and have a cup of tea and not to actually uh, ask the Holy Spirit to come and do some work. Let's just pause. Let's just start each in our own hearts, asking the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us. There's three particular things Paul's highlighted to us today. It might be actually God wants to highlight a different truth to you today. But actually, let's just start asking the Holy Spirit in your own heart what truth he wants to reveal to you. And let me just say first, if you're um, not a Christian here today, you're a visitor, please feel free to take part as much or as little in this. Please just sit back and relax. Feel free to take part, but feel under no pressure to do so at all. But let's just start inviting the Holy Spirit. I guess we start leaving pauses, actually. Just, he wants to speak to us today. Holy Spirit, come and reveal to us what truth do you want to speak to us today? Just take a moment. It'll be different for each one of us. We want to leave a moment for us to ask the Holy Spirit to come and to talk to us and reveal what truth it is he wants to talk to us today. <laughs>